Thank you, ladies. Morning, everybody. It is nice to have some cool weather again. That's this beautiful song, isn't it? It's a great idea, isn't it? Crowning the true king as the Lord of all things. You, you hear that, and your heart kind of jumps in a positive way, and you say, that is awesome. He's the rightful king. I love it. And then you might say, is, is that actually something that I want? Do I actually want to recognize Jesus alone as the controlling force in the entire world? Do I actually want to let go of my grip on the idea that I am in charge? It's a great thought, and I love to sing it. You, you, you self-reflect on that a little bit, and it's unsettling to say, I'm going to relinquish, I'm going to let go of lordship and give it only to God. It's a great abstract concept, but in the concrete, it's tough. My family and I, uh, last year, so we're going to go on vacation here after today. We're going to leave tomorrow. And we, we last year went down to, we like to go camping. So if you could come with me to where we were camping last year, uh, it's a little campground on the side of the Rogue River. We like to do rafting and that kind of thing. So we're on the Rogue River. The campground is there, and there's a very small little sandy beach to play on, and I'm playing there with the kids. But out in the middle of the river is this island. Now, Annabelle, my daughter, is seven years old. She and I both like to explore and do cool stuff. And I say, hey, Annabelle, you want to go out to that island? Oh, yeah, Dad, that sounds great. Okay, let's go. Now, you're looking at these peaceful, sort of serene, the water is rolling a little bit in the Rogue River, but it looks pretty doable. And I can look down and I can see the bottom and I can see the bottom out for a ways and I think, oh, knee deep maybe, but we'll be good. Now on the, the, the river flows in and hits the island and then splits around and on both sides there's these two, three foot high white waves, but they're on the side of the island. If I just go up in the smooth water, the smooth water's fine, we'll be good. So here's my seven-year-old daughter next to me. She's got her little life jacket on, and we start walking out. And the current's getting stronger and stronger. But I'm like, we're going to get to the island. I've got this. It's not a problem. My feet are kind of slipping now. Now we get out a little bit further, and the water's coming so hard against me that I'm starting to get that muscle shake. And I'm leaning. And I'm, I know I'm pretty little. But I'm, I'm, I have to lean. I'm thinking, okay, the water's pushing. Now I'm leaning. Now I'm moving further toward the island, and Annabelle can't hang on anymore. She's up. And I've got the little loop on the top of her life jacket, and I'm gripping it. And her seven-year-old bodily is flailing in the water like a windsock at an airport. And I'm holding her, and the water's coming, and my knees are shaking. And what am I feeling right there? I'm terrified. I have no control. I am at the mercy of the Rogue River. There's no way I can get back. I'm looking at what's going to happen if my feet give way. And it's, you know, the bottom is these big softball-sized rocks. There's not a good footing. And if it gives up, we're going straight into those rapids. I don't have a life jacket on, but we're going for it. And I'm trying to think through all that stuff. In that moment, there's the fear of losing Annabelle. What is going to happen if she goes sailing down through these class three rapids? 
what am I going to, and then the foolishness, wow, how did I get out here into the middle of the Rogue River with my, with my chacos on, you know? I need to have an anchor, not sandals. It was just brutal, but I think about that moment, and I say, I was dwelling on that this week. Um, we're going back down there again, but I'm not going to do that again. Uh, but I was thinking about it, and I thought, at the heart of my deep-seated fear was this sense of, I am at the mercy of a river that is named the Rogue, probably in part because of the death toll it exacts every single year. I've done lots of youth camps on the Rogue, and every year we hear about two, three, four, five, or six people dying on the Rogue. So it's this brutal force. I'm not, I have no power over it, and it creates this tremendous fear inside of me. We opt for control. We like the feeling that we're in control. And another way to say control, and this is where we'll start to move into Mark's gospel, is authority. Who has the authority? Who has control? Okay? The question that we'll face here is going gonna, is gonna to be, who's in charge? Who has authority over this place? And and I'd ask you, has human history not unfolded as this very long drama where people in different parties are seeking control? Nietzsche would have said it was a desire or the will to power that is at the core of human existence. I'm not saying he's correct, but it was an observation. There's something about us. We saw yesterday in the news brutal scenes of parties trying to have control over the other. Isn't the desire to control at the heart of many of your conflicts with your spouse or loved ones? Trying to overpower control? How about when you realize that you've crossed the line from training your child to actually harming your child? When that happens, and it happens to every single parent, when it does, you face this deep, reality where you say, I crossed that line because I moved out of serving, loving, and training into trying to control them. We opt for control. Isn't that at the heart of Adam and Eve in the garden? God says this, and we can choose to follow, or we can take the lead and take the reins into our own hands. We know how that worked out for Adam and Eve. We all, born with that nature, opt for control. Now, in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been doing and saying some really odd things. He's been doing things that are very abrasive, certainly offensive. And everywhere he goes, people keep asking, who is this guy? Who is this man? Which is pretty, that's a pretty innocent question. I would ask that. Man, who is this guy? But the men in charge... The ones who really want to be in control of the people, well, their question gets a little bit less innocent. Who does this guy think he is? Now, that question is generally not coming from a place of innocent curiosity, right? When you, when you say, who do you think you are? That's not like, I am interested in who you think you are please tell me. It's not so innocent. It's a pretty aggressive statement. And these leaders are confrontational and they're challenging and they're creating controversy. And especially in these last chapters of Mark, which we're in now, 
Mark shows us how Jesus is locked in this real combat with a coalition of influencers. He's locked in it, but he's holding his own, and Mark keeps giving us these little hints that he is going to win in the end. This is Jesus the brave. We are in Jesus the brave. And it's a good thing he's brave because these, these religious elitists They're about to bring the pain against him. Jesus has been exposing to them a truth about who they've become. He's exposing to them a truth about their own pride, their ignorance, and even their contempt for others. They see others who are not as holy and righteous as them. And they say, well, it's our love for God that makes us want to make sure that these idiots are not so dumb. You see? They have a contempt for other people. They have a disconnection from the people that God set them in in to serve. No self-righteous person ever wants to hear that his or her righteousness is only in the mind. And that's what Jesus is trying to say to them. You guys think you're pretty awesome, but that's just in your head. No, my righteousness is visible. You can see it. Look at me. Look at me. This is the attitude that they have. And Jesus is saying, that's what I'm doing. I'm looking at you with very clear, functional eyes. And I see the fruits of what you've been doing. And those fruits should tell you. The the rotten grapes on this vine should tell you that you're not what you think you are. But you don't want to listen to God. Because if you did listen to God, you would have to step out of the driver's seat. You'd have to crown him Lord of all. And you're not doing that, and you don't want to do that, even though you think you do, and you say you do. You're much more in step, Jesus is going to say, with your parents, Adam and Eve. In these last couple of scenes, Jesus has really been starting to stir the pot. Okay, big time. It's kind of like if you went up to Albert Einstein in an international science conference and you said, hey, bro, you don't know anything about relativity. You know, everybody's like, who is this guy? (laughs) He's talking to the major authority here. You can't say that. Jesus is kind of setting himself that way. And we, in our modern sensibilities, we would say, okay, Jesus, bro, you got to back down a little bit. You're stirring the pot. People are getting upset. They don't know what you're talking about. You've got to rebrand your message, get it a little bit more palatable. I kind of want Jesus to go, Mr. Rogers, cardigan, sweater, just be cool about it, okay? But I, that's not what Jesus does here. He's, he's sparked this fire. But I imagine him far more with his shirt off. He's got that brown Palestinian Jewish skin, and, he's, and it's like a Jewish Rambo, Okay? And he's got a super soaker filled, you know, the big, huge squirt gun, and it's filled with gasoline. And he's just pumping that fire. You would have, they're saying, throw water on the fire, Jesus. People are getting upset. And he is just gassing it. And he's going to keep doing it. Today, he adds another layer of controversy. And we kind of say, geez, what's he doing? I want you to see in Jesus' actions, not a crazy man, but a loving man. Sometimes our definition of love today has been way too influenced by Hallmark. We want a love definition that comes right out of the Bible. And when we watch Jesus, we are watching love incarnate. And it's amazing. Now, we left off last Sunday with Jesus doing something crazy. 
He comes into the temple and he judges it. The temple is the heart of worship. It's the place of salvation. It's the epicenter of the best religion in the world. And he comes into it and he starts flipping over tables and beating people with the whip and driving out money changers and merchants. And everybody just says, what in the world are you doing? And it's a big deal. It's the hope of salvation. It's the place to be present with God. And Jesus just says, no, this has become a den of thieves. A den of thieves. This is the land of the holy. This isn't the den of thieves. What are you talking about? And then, in the very last scene, this is one we read last week, he quotes out of Jeremiah 7. That's Jeremiah's very famous uh, temple sermon, if you will. And in that sermon, there are other prophetic texts that talk about the renewal and restoration of a temple. But in Jeremiah's temple sermon, it talks about the utter destruction of the temple. And that's the one that Jesus chooses to hearken back to in the Gospel of Mark. He's guaranteeing that their beloved holy place is going to be undone. That's the Jewish Rambo, if you will. It might be a little bit naughty, but it's, I like that image. He's throwing napalm onto this fire now and grenades, and, and that is just the most intense, controversial thing to say. You say, man, this has already been a pretty intense story. <laughs> These last few chapters are really intense. So let's begin where we left off. We're in Mark chapter 11, and there's two blocks that I want to read today. One is the scene. It's the actual on-the-ground scene. Here's what took place. I want to talk about that a little bit. And then the second text is right after it in the opening of chapter 12, and that's a parable that Jesus tells to give some explanation to his very cryptic answer to these opposers. So, pick it up with me in Mark 11, verse 27. Again, they, the they is Jesus and his disciples, again they entered Jerusalem. And as Jesus was walking through the temple area, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law and the elders came up to him. Pause for a second. That is a very impressive list of the absolute most important people in Jesus' world. This is the president, the secretary of state. I mean, this is the absolute list of the best and brightest. And if you remember that image of the temple I showed last, last week, there's those sides, those porticos with these huge columns. And they would hang out there, and they would talk philosophy and religion and Torah, and they would teach. These were the big shots. These are the best ones, and Mark is cueing you and I in to say, now the absolute authorities in his world are going to approach him, okay? So we'll pick it back up in verse 28. These guys, they demanded, by what authority are you doing all of these things? Who gave you the right to do them? Jesus says, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things if you answer one question. Isn't Jesus cool? I love how he does it. If you answer one question, did John's authority to baptize come from heaven? Or was it merely human? Answer me. Verse 31, well, they talked about it amongst themselves. I don't know. What do you think of John? I don't know. Well, if we say that it was from heaven, then he will ask why we didn't believe in John. 
But do we dare say that it was merely human? And now Mark gives us a little editorial comment. He says, because they were afraid. They were afraid, that's key, of what the people would do because everyone believed that John was a prophet. And so they finally replied, uh, we don't know. You know. And Jesus responded to them, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. <laughs> Isn't that good? That's good. That's good. They come up with the question. He knows it's a fake question. He wants to draw out where their heart is really at. He wants them to see where their heart is. He wants to set before them the truth. And they're not having it. Remember, Jesus has just performed a staggering, unsettling action in the heart of religious worship. So their question is natural. Who do you think you are? By what authority do you think you can do these things? But do you think that they're actually asking an honest question? Are they seeking? Or do you think they're just saying something and they're using question-like words to say it? What would you say an honest question looks like. I'll tell you this, an honest question is not when my five-year-old boy Wesley asks, but dad, I wanna stay up till midnight and eat Snickers bars, why can't I? Okay, he's not actually asking me for the reasons that he can't stay up and eat Snickers. I know, because every time I give him the reasons for things, he's like, oh. You know, I'm just like, look at my face, pay attention. He doesn't want to know. What he's saying to me is not an honest question. He's giving me a direct statement, which is, Dad, you're the worst human being that I've encountered in the last 30 seconds, and you are ridiculous. That's, that's his statement to me. But he phrases it like a question. <laughs> okay? An honest question comes from somebody who's genuinely not settled about an issue. They truly don't know the answer. And so they're wondering about it. They're earnestly asking for your help. Honest questions only come from a posture of humility and understanding that you have much to learn, a genuine kind of seeking. I would say I don't hear lots of honest questions these days. The world has taught us to be people who have it all figured out. It says the best people are the ones who have everything all figured out. Our reality, which if we're honest, is none of us has it all figured out. And so we play a game where we try to look like we have it all figured out and we put the things of our lives that look and seem to prove that we have it all figured out. But inside, we don't. We know just why this is the way it is. We know just how to fix this or that. We pretend these things, but we really don't. But we've watched Jesus teaching people not to prove themselves, but to seek. He doesn't teach us to say, okay, you've got to put your best foot forward and make sure everybody knows you're awesome. He says, you should seek the kingdom of God. When you do, you'll find God. Be humble, enter into that way of life, to wonder about God and his kingdom. As one who doesn't know everything, as one who says, I'm in the first, 
I'm in the first 80-year leg of a multi-trillion-year lifespan. <laughs> you know, Would I really think I have that much figured out in this first run? God will continue to teach us for hundreds of trillions of years. You'll continue to grow. None of us can sit and say, oh, yeah, I get it. And yet these dudes are really thinking that. And they're therefore wondering, who do you think you are? Now, he doesn't play their game. To answer them directly would be a nice thing to do, wouldn't it? He'd say, oh, my authority comes from God. There you go. Take it or leave it. You know, he could be nice and just answer them directly. We kind of look at his non-answer as not being very nice. But I would say this again. He isn't being nice. He's being loving. Being nice fosters preservation. Being loving sparks transformation. Ask yourself an honest question. Would you rather have people just be nice to you or would you want them to be loving? My flesh yearns for niceness. I want people to just affirm me, pat me on the back, say, hot diggity dog, mentor teen, you've got it, bro. You're awesome. You're so great. I want people to be nice like that. Remember I've told you before the root word of nice in Latin is ignorant. Being nice helps to preserve people right where they're at. Being loving sparks transformation. My flesh yearns for niceness, but my soul needs, desperately needs love. For people to affirm my qualities, yes, and, and just as often to call me on my sin, to honor my good decisions, and, and also to rebuke my poor decisions. To, to use the scriptures to inspire me, but also to teach and reprove me. You see? Niceness is not what we are called to. Paul says to Timothy, you are not called to a spirit of timidity and just sort of being fluffy. We're called to the strong love of Jesus with one another. And that's what you see here. Being nice fosters preservation. Being loving sparks transformation. Now, with a hard-hitting and wise love, Jesus says to them, or asks them, did John's authority come from heaven, or did it come from man? That's a question to spark transformation. If they answer it honestly, they'll see the truth. You see, they're not ignorant of John and his impact. And this court of heart takes us all the way back to the very first part of the story. John has impacted multitudes in Israel. And the Pharisees and these legal authorities and scribes and so forth, they know it. John was a big deal. And he had set himself as a beacon of hope to the people. In Mark 1, verse 5, so these are the opening lines of the story, you have a very wide appeal to John's preaching being shown to us. People from the whole Judean countryside, Mark says, and everyone from Jerusalem, he says, were going out to hear John. He might be speaking with a little bit of hyperbole. I don't know if every single human being in the walls of Jerusalem went out, but his point is, man, everybody was doing it. Everybody's going to see John. Even if he's exaggerating, we have a, outside of the Bible, same time frame, a Jewish historian, his name is Josephus. He writes about the impact of John the Baptist, same era. He says, um, 
Others joining the crowds were mightily stirred up by John's preaching. He had a huge impact on the wealthiest down to the poorest in the nation. And remember that he is always saying that he's preparing the way for another. This is where it gets tight with the statement Jesus makes with these guys. John has always linked his ministry tightly to Jesus's. He's always said, what I am doing is prepping you for Jesus. And then when Jesus hits the scene, remember in the Gospel of John, you have, you have John the Baptist saying, okay, he's here now. I must decrease so that he can increase. The point is, is he's tightly connected to Jesus' own ministry. And everybody knows that they operate in sync. So if one is legit, then both are legit. And if one is a fraud, then both are a fraud. And if these guys say, well, John is a fraud, then they have just in one fell swoop ostracized them from the entire community of the, of the Israelites. So they don't know what to do. Here's another interesting note. I know we didn't talk about this before, but this is really cool. On John's ministry and the way that it's described, it irritated this coalition of influencers that Jesus is doing battle with. Where did John the Baptist's ministry happen? Out in the wilderness, remember? He's out there wearing camel and camel fur and eating bugs and stuff. He's out in the, out in the hills. Mark is showing us in that. We're kind of like, oh man, that's kind of weird. I don't know. I wouldn't do that, but John's cool. Uh, Mark is showing us something much more than just a weirdo in the hills. He's showing us a direction people are moving towards salvation, and it's not toward the temple or toward Jerusalem. You see it? When people thought about salvation, will God rescue me? Their heads immediately went like a knee-jerk reaction. They said, I am in the godly nation. I'm good. I can go to the holy city, to the temple. We've got it. We're good. Jerusalem, the temple, and makes them feel safe in their salvation. They had developed a belief that Jerusalem was so central to salvation that eventually all of the world would migrate to that one spot. And this would become the epicenter of all of God's presence and everybody would come there. But the opening of Mark's gospel, he shows everybody leaving. They're going away from the Jerusalem. They're going away from the temple up to the hills and they're not going up to sacrifice. What are they going up to do? Repent, make way, he's coming. Mark right at the onset flips the whole narrative that they've been thinking to expose a truth that is just unsettling to them. They're actually heading out and the baptism itself was controversial. We have lots of history in Judaism where people are doing ceremonial cleansing and washing. I've showed you pictures when I was over there of mikvahs and places where they wash their hands. So washing with water to prep for being in the presence of God is nothing new. But John uses the word baptizo. In the Greek that means dip, immerse, drench, plunge, sink, overwhelm. And John's baptism, unlike what they were used to, which was self-administered, I go to my mikvah and I wash and I do my own cleansing. John's is one where it's administered by another person. 
It's very, very different. He's breaking all kinds of molds and he's dunking people all the way and he's the one doing it. It's a picture that's just as symbolic as it is effective. It's pointing to a spiritual cleansing that somebody other than myself is doing. So everything that John was doing was turning tables upside down. He was upsetting the order, and these guys that are fighting with Jesus, they didn't like John either, but they don't, they're in a pickle. They don't know what to do. And the gospel repentance, not Jerusalem or the temple, not the religious elite, it's repentance that is the beginning of true eternal life. And the crowds, they feel it. It's new to them, too. Nobody's just signing on whole hog right at the onset. They feel it. They see it. So you see this language. It's like they see the ring of truth in what Jesus is saying, but it's so weird. But they ask. They seek. Who is this man? I think the crowds often ask that earnestly. Who is this? He speaks with such authority. These crowds who loved and believed in John have now come to see Jesus in the same light. And the power brokers are starting to see the truth that they cannot stomach. They are not in control of these people the way that they had thought they were. So on one hand, if Jesus' authority, or if John's authority came from God, then because of Jesus' tight link to John, these guys would have to admit Jesus is from God as well. And that would mean that his sign acts that he's done Notably, the most recent one where he pronounced judgment on the leaders of Israel and the temple, we would have to admit that that was a message from God about us, and we'd have to own it, and they're not having it. On the other hand, if they say that John's ministry is just made up so they can get to that answer, they can say, man, John wasn't of God, you're not of God either, then that sparks riots. The crowd will dismiss them as ungodly because the crowds have determined John was a prophet, as Mark has told us. Have you ever met somebody who's really clambering, really wanting to have that control over you or over others, but they're also very afraid of people? The Bible teaches us that there is no fear in true love. A leader who's terrified or afraid of the people needs to stop and say, hmm, do I actually love these people? Or are they afraid of what they might say about them, afraid of what might happen? St. Augustine, long ago, he wrote about this passage, fearing a stoning, but fearing more an admission of the truth. They answered the truth with a lie, reminiscent of the scripture, which says, injustice has lied within herself. And the Lord said to them, neither do I tell you by what I do these things. That's Jesus. I'm not going to tell you. If you're not going to tell me the truth, I'm not going to tell you the truth. Faced with the truth about their fear and their disdain toward Jesus and John, they cave. Truth is just too much for them. This whole story, writes William Barclay, is a vivid example of what happens to those who will not face the truth. They have to twist and wriggle, and they end up getting themselves into a position in which they are so helplessly involved that they have nothing left to say. Those who face the truth 
they may have the humiliation of saying we were wrong or the peril of standing by that. But at least the future for them is strong and bright. But for those who refuse to face the truth, well, they have nothing but the prospect of deeper and deeper involvement in a situation which renders them helpless and ineffective. That's a good, that's a good thought. And that's what you see in verse 46. We don't know. Then Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I ask my boy Wesley sometimes, hey, Wesley, why did you just stab Annabelle with that World War II bayonet? I have this cool bayonet that my dad gave me. I thought that it would be good to give it to a five-year-old boy as a toy. Allie also thought that was a great idea. So, I, you know, boys need swords to play with, so he's got the sword. Why did you stab her? He says, uh, I don't know. And it's like, no, I know why you did. It's because you found that nasty jelly bean under the bed from Easter 2014, and you were born with an addiction to refined sugar, and when she didn't split the jelly bean with you, you thought that you'd stab her with it. You know, you were going to get even. That's the truth. He knows that truth. He can't face that truth, though, because it may bring a, a consequence he doesn't like. He just can't handle it, so he just plays this game of, man, I don't know what's going on. For the enemies of Jesus, they simply could not face the truth that he was the Messiah, the true son, the heir of God. And so they keep trying to lie to themselves about it, thinking that if they just play their cards just right, by golly, then they'll be able to outsmart and win. They'll wriggle themselves into a situation where they're more and more involved and then more and more helpless and ineffective. That's the picture that Mark has slowly revealed to us, isn't it? My friends, we are a people who claim to love the truth. We love things that are real, not false. Truthfulness, not fakeness. We say that. But really, I think, I am more interested in the truth about other people, and I'm interested in abstract truth. I'm a lot less interested in the truth about me ground level, real concrete truth about me. For some reason, that is exponentially tougher for me to swallow. When we're faced with the truth about our own life and about our belief systems and even about the way that we live with Jesus himself, we need to own it and change. We can learn from the mistake of these opposers and not follow their path, but instead choose the way of the cross which is the way of humility and seeking God's kingdom. Okay, so that's the scene. Now, because Jesus is an absolute genius, quite frankly, he now tells this very strange story, a parable. It's cryptic, but not so cryptic. So that's where I want to go next. He's going to respond with this sharp, provocative story that's just interesting enough to keep the attention of these really angry naysayers, but it's also clear enough to, to where when he gets to the end, they're like, uh-oh, uh-oh, I think he's talking about us. That's pretty bad. So put your finger in Mark 12, and here's a little background because he's going to tap into Isaiah 5 here. 
The background allusion is to Isaiah 5, where Israel, the people of God, are called God's vineyard. The vineyard, or the people, are not so much in mind here when Jesus gives this parable. He's not talking primarily about the community of Israel. He's talking about the leaders, or the cultivators of the people, if you will. And for a little historical background, up until the time of Jesus, you've got about a 300-year period where there's been a social justice issue that has been mounting. And it's that landowners who own farms and fields in the Jordan Valley and elsewhere have sort of taken to leaving that place and setting up tenants in those, in those properties that they owned. This has been very common. But it's raised a really strong problem legally because in the laws that they had made, ownership of land was about nine-tenths related to possessing it or living on it. So you've got a problem all the time with people who would, if you, would, if you will, own the title to the property. But they've hired people who have been living on it for some time, and those people are saying, hey, we haven't heard from you in a long time, and so this is actually our orchard now. And the title owner's like, no, I own that land. And they're like, "Uh uh-uh, we've been working it. Who were you? You're not even around. So this is a context that Jesus is speaking into. When he tells this parable, they're not like, wow, that's weird. We've never heard of that. They're like, oh, that's happening all the time these days. So that's in the background. Now, here's Isaiah 5. Listen to these words from God through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 5, 1 and 2. He says, I will sing to my love. There he means God. I will sing to my God or my love a song to my lover about his vineyard. My love, God, had a vineyard up on a fertile hill. He built a hedge around it and he removed its stones and he planted a vine. He built a tower in the middle of it. He constructed a wine press. He waited for it to produce edible grapes, but it produced sour ones instead. Notice how the people of God are the vineyard, and the imagery here of the watchtower and the wine press are the temple and the altar. So the vineyard is the people, and then you have a watchtower and a wine press that represent the temple and the altar. Not all parables read so allegorical. I would actually say this is the most. You can get a little bit weird with parables if you start to see them as allegories for all this little stuff. But here, that's exactly what he's doing. Now, let's read it together. Jesus has just exposed the truth to these naysayers, these opposers. The fire inside them is burning hot. And so here comes a little more gas for the fire, okay? Chapter 12, verse 1. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, he said. He put a fence around it. He dug a pit for its wine press, and he built a watchtower. Then he leased the land to tenant farmers, and then he went away on a journey. Now at harvest time, some of his servants he sent to the tenants to collect from them a portion of the crop. But those tenants seized his servant, or your Bibles maybe say slave, They seized this messenger, they beat him, and then they sent him away (laughs) empty-handed. You know, they come to collect the rent and they they beat the snot out of him and say, get out of here. So he sent another servant to them again, and this one they struck on the head and treated outrageously. And then he sent, verse 5, then he sent another, and that one they killed. And this happened to many others some of whom were beaten. 
others killed. He had one left, his beloved, one and only son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, they killed him, and they threw his body out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants, and he will give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? Jesus asks them. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 12. Now they wanted to arrest him. That's Mark's way of saying, now the fire is blazing hot. But they feared the crowd because they realized that he told this parable against them. And so they left him and they went away. Verse 7, I think, is crucial here. Look at verse 7 one more time. He's using a story to tell them, here's the truth. You know that I am the heir. Deep down, you know it. You know that these people, the vineyard, are my inheritance. The ones that the Father has given to me, the owner has given to me. You think that by killing me, you can maintain this pretend ownership that you have over them, my vineyard, but you are believing a lie. They see the truth of these crowds and their fear is great. They hear the truth of Jesus and their fear is compounded. They, they cannot stomach what they would lose if they lived according to Jesus' truth. And they see that this parable is a scorching condemnation of the way that they're living. It's not a death threat. It's a death reality. By rejecting the cornerstone, the Messiah himself, Jesus, they're rejecting life itself. They're fearing this truth, something fierce. And this parable implicates many of God's people in a long history of similar behavior. The kings of Israel and Judah, they led their nation into chaos and decay over and over again, and they refused to listen to the warnings of a long line of prophets that God sent to them saying, stop this. You're not believing the truth. You're totally outside of my will. You're totally outside of real life, even though you think you're living the good life. God has sent servants of his, if you will, to the tenants, if you will, and they have beat them and killed them over and over and over again. Jesus is saying, this is the kind of lineage that you belong to, and now the son is standing before you, the rightful heir. What will you do? And according to the story, the parable, verse 8, they seized him, killed him, and threw his body out of the vineyard. That's way more than just a murder for the Jewish first century mind. 
to not receive a proper, proper burial is a major, it's worse than being killed. To be thrown as a corpse up and over the hill or up and over the wall so that the crows and the coyotes can pick at your flesh is a disgusting and depraved reality. He's saying, not only do you kill him, but you treat him with the greatest dishonor we could imagine. It's interesting, Jesus himself will later on be taken outside of the wall. He'll be hung up on a cross that's probably about this exact height. Just a few inches, his feet will be off the ground so that he's at spitting level. So people coming in and out of the city can hawk a lug on him and make fun of him. He's a criminal. He dies as the most worthless human being, you see. Jesus is predicting what's gonna, what they will do to him, and they can see it. And what do they do? They still live into their own truth. It's like Jesus says, you're going to do this heinous crime, and the, the closing line is, and they wanted to arrest him. I think we can boil it down to this. They fear the truth that they are not in control the way that they had thought they were. Yes, they can change themselves if they would pay attention to the truth about themselves, but they don't want to self-reflect at all. They prefer to dwell, to obsess on the actions of others. And they want to find blame and they want to find fault in Jesus, in the people of Israel, in others. While they maintain their own perceived image of themselves, which is very, very good. All of what they're doing, they love to brand it as, we're just serving God, that's all. But the deep truth is that they don't want to serve God. They want to be God. Consider the Garden of Eden. Adam was given a gift. Adam, the first son, the first heir of creation. He's given a gift, if you will. And when it came, it came with clear instructions for him on how to use and live in this gifted world. But Adam diverts from those instructions and he says, I want to be the owner here. I want to take over. Adam, the first son, sought his own will over God's. Now, in the same way, Jesus, the second Adam, he's given a gift. The world and all of the people whom the Father gives to him, you and me included. You know, we're a gift to Jesus from God. Isn't that great? From the Father. He sees you and I as a gift as a grace. And what does he do? He becomes a grace to us. In Eden we saw great loss because Adam says, my will be done. But in the next garden, Gethsemane, we see the great recovery because Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. And in doing so, he lays claim to his inheritance the true people of God. Though he could count his equality with God, his authority as something to be grasped and wielded to bring control of the people, instead, he lets go of the right and he becomes emptied. He kenosist. He empties himself and he becomes a servant to us to help, to enliven and to lead, to shepherd, not to control. The Father he trusts for that. 
It's beautiful, isn't it? That's the kind of God that loves you. He respects you. He cherishes you. You're his miracle. He loves you in a way that is incomprehensible to us. It's a truth that's almost too hard to stomach. How would he love me? He invites us to become like him. That passage I just quoted was Philippians 2. Read it. See how he says, in the same way Christ lived, let's live the same way. Be servants to one another with a servant's heart. Servants are not owners. You have right here standing before you a pastor. Flaws and failings aplenty. But I truly believe that God has put me in your life not to control you or manage you. My role is not to persuade you to obey me or my vision. My role is not to be nice to you or to try to preserve you where you're at. And if that's what you're hoping from me, you'll always be bummed, or for any pastor. My role is to minister the gospel to you, this gospel we're reading, and to help you turn your face toward Jesus. My role is to care for you. My role is to give my own life to you as a sacrifice for your shalom, for your well-being, for your real life in Christ. And your role is likewise to love me, to build me up, to strengthen me, to help me lead well. Your role is not to control or dominate me just as much as that's not my role with you. God sets me in your lives, his vineyard, and he says, Ben, serve this people. He does give me authority as a pastor, and he does not tell me to diminish that in my mind or in your minds, but he says, the one who wields my kind of authority well becomes a servant to the people. I hope that that's how you see me. I hope I present myself that way, and I know I don't do it perfectly but I give you my word before God himself that that is the goal of my life. I'm going to keep living that way, and I speak on behalf of all of our pastors. You and I alike, when we face the truth over and over again that we are not in control, we may first balk and say, but God, that's not fair. I should be, but upon further reflection... With the Holy Spirit counseling our souls, we realize that releasing our grasp on authority and control is actually the most freeing move. We can rightfully bow before God rather than needing to prove ourselves before God. Rather than those prideful givers, remember the scene Jesus tells in another parable? They come up to the offering plate and they posture themselves and they say, hey, 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 what's up, guys? Check out my righteousness. It's amazing, isn't it? Big change, bills, money. Look at what I'm doing. Can you see my exuberant love for God, huh? You guys paying attention here? I'm awesome. 
You see, Jesus tells the parable about the self-righteous giver, but who follows up right after them? Oh, it's the broken widow. She's got two little pennies. She pops in the plate. She's got two little pennies, and her head bows. Her knees buckle, and she's in that place where she says, all of what I have is a gift. I love you, God. Her face is turned toward him. Her face is not horizontal, making sure everybody's paying attention to her. She doesn't care about that. She cares about the God of her life, the creator of the world. She doesn't have much to offer, and yet Jesus says it's way more that she offers. Oh, let that encourage you, men and women who feel like you don't have much to offer. The posture of humility and love in this community is worth mountains of gold in terms of bringing your brothers and sisters in this family to real life in Christ. Let's take the posture of that widow, and that is glorious beauty. Our God is not the rogue river. He is not a merciless natural force in the world threatening to kill you with his great power. If you find yourself in the middle of that river, you're terrified because you don't know what's going to happen. I might lose my daughter. It could be bad. I just don't have any idea. It's just too bad. My knees are shaking. But you and I, we don't have that fear of what's going to happen. We just sang the song, I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the Father and Son and Spirit. This life will go on. I don't worry about getting swept away. God has us. With God, you realize that you cannot control his people or his reality, but you also know that your future is strong, and it's not about death and loss. It's a future of resurrection and restoration and joy. It's a future of love that casts out all fear. It is the unending safety and security of knowing that your God the Heavenly Father is bringing you to life in the truth more and more each day because of His intense and unfailing love for you. We must become a people who never fear the truth. Pray with me. Jesus, we start just to do a little cursory self-reflecting on our souls, and we, and we see these walls of stone that have formed because of the teaching the world just drives into our heads and hearts. And, and I don't know how you pulled this off. It speaks to your genius. It speaks to how smart you are. You're profoundly intelligent, the way that you're able with with tight questions and provocative stories that cause us to wonder and think and sit with you and dwell upon where we're really at, you somehow break open these hard hearts of stone and bring them back to life. And we are so grateful. What an unbelievable creator you are. This beautiful world you made, filled with the beautiful people that you call miracles and your beloved vineyard. Help us to become like you. Help us to take heart of these passages we're reading in your gospel. Help us to see your unfailing and unending love so that we could learn to be your servants and not try to be you, not try to be God. 
We want to be like you, but we don't want to be you because only you are the great I am. My goodness, you are awesome. Thank you for loving us the way you do. We love you and we trust you with our lives. Amen.